Well, I invite you to join me in 1 Peter chapter 2, if you are not there already. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 18 to 25. 1 Peter 2, 18 to 25. Let's open with a word of prayer. Heavenly Father, this morning, we do rejoice in our hope that is in Christ alone. Even as we've been reminded from the songs that we have sung and even from the scripture reading that we opened with this morning, we know how unworthy we are, Lord. We are sinners, and we do not deserve grace fact, Lord, if we are honest this morning, we know that as scripture testifies that the wages of our sin is death, that what we have earned is separation from you, our holy God. And yet by grace alone this morning, we rejoice in the finished work of Jesus Christ who bore our sins on the cross. So Lord, I pray that even this morning, and reality of the beauty of that terrible cross. In reality of the truth and the power of the gospel. Change our perspectives, Lord. Give us hope through all the circumstances of life. Help us to see that even our suffering has purpose in Christ. Open our eyes to these truths, Lord. Strip away all distractions and work through your word in our hearts this morning that you may be honored in all that we say and do. We pray these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. Let me start with a question this morning. And my clicker is not working. I can go on. There we go. Let me start with a question this morning. Can you think of a time when you held a strong opinion that eventually changed? A strong opinion, something that you were convinced about, and yet it eventually changed. And, And what is it that led to that change? I can think of many such instances instances in my own life. But the one that popped into my mind this week as I was meditating on these things, one of the most obvious examples from my life, takes us all the way back to when I was in kindergarten. Apparently, my mother tells me that I was a child of strong conviction. To the point where I refused to learn to read because I didn't see the value in it. In fact, my mom tells me that as a five-year-old, I literally told her, 
When I was struggling to read, and she was trying to get me, and she was working with me, and, and why don't you just do this? You need to learn to read. And I, I literally told her, I don't, I don't want to learn to read because I don't need it to learn to read. I'm never going to need to use it. And so I had to repeat kindergarten. But I must confess to you this morning that despite my initial strong conviction that with experience, I want to announce that I have officially changed my position on reading. (laughs) Turns out that reading is important and, and actually it's enjoyable. It's a silly example and it seems ridiculous now looking back to think that I ever, with full conviction, uttered the phrase, I will never need to read. But if you think about it, it made sense from my five-year-old perspective. To that point in life, I had never needed to read. I had gotten through life just fine. My mom read for me. You see, what I lacked as a five-year-old was proper perspective. I'd made it to five just fine without ever reading, but I failed to recognize that I was not going to be five-year-olds forever. I did not have the experience to speak with such conviction as a five-year-old. And sadly, I failed to listen to those and trust those who did have that experience and knowledge. And in the end, I had to live with the consequences. I had to repeat kindergarten. But is it not true that it often takes a new experience or a changed perspective to change our opinions? It's not that you just wake up one day and you're like, huh, you know, I think I was wrong about that. There's something that goes on, a change in perspective. Maybe it was, or whether it was your opinion of the opposite sex that changed sometime between elementary school and high school. Or the whole host of strong-held opinions that changed after you moved out of your parents' house and got married or had children. It is amazing how changes in circumstances like that bring new perspectives that change opinions on things. This morning in 1 Peter 2, we come to a text that reminds us of the paradigm-shifting power of the gospel. Brothers and sisters, the gospel changes everything. It changes your perspective on everything. Our passage this morning deals with the topic of submission and suffering. But when rightly understood, it really it touches on every area of life. This morning we will see the grace of God in all of life and even his purpose in suffering. Where we lack perspective, may we submit to and trust in the one who knows all things and is working them together for good this morning. So this morning, as we work our way through this passage, we're going to see an offensive truth, a radical example, and a confident hope. An offensive truth, a radical example, and a confident hope. First thing we see this morning is an offensive truth. In verses 18 to 21, 
The context in the book of 1 Peter is life as an exile. The topic in the surrounding passage is, the topic is still submission to earthly authority. We saw that last week. In the beginning of, of chapter 2, or the middle of chapter 2. Submission to those who have authority over us, specifically those placed in, in government authority by God. We are called to be good citizens, to submit, to do well. Why? Because we have an agenda. It's the agenda of the gospel. To preach the gospel, to spread the good news, to show the change that has happened in us through Christ. So we're still in this topic of submission to earthly authority. And specifically now, Peter moves from, from government down to even household. Specifically, the servant and master relationship. In fact, we see that right there, we see that right there in the first word of verse 18. Servants, be submissive to your masters. Servants, submit to your master with all fear. We've talked about that, that idea of fear before. It's really the, the idea of a deep respect. But what's interesting to note here is that in every instance in 1 Peter, fear is directed not to humans, but to God. Every instance in 1 Peter, fear is connected to God. So taking that understanding, that context, we see here in the beginning of verse 18, servants be submissive to your masters with all fear to God. We're submitting to our masters not because we fear them, because there's some masters that we don't respect. In fact, that's exactly where Peter's going to go next. There are some masters that we do not respect, that we don't have that, that respect for. And yet we submit. Why? Because we fear God. Because we have a higher authority. Be submissive. Not because of who you serve under here on earth. Be submissive because of who you are in Christ. Be submissive because of your heavenly Father. Be submissive with the agenda of the gospel, even as we'll see as we work our way through this passage. Now, I'm not going to spend a lot of time on the, aspect, the aspects of slavery, the topic of slavery. It is an offensive topic, but it's one that we covered several weeks ago when we were in Ephesians uh, chapters 5 and 6. And what you'll find a lot of times is as the New Testament deals with slavery, Peter and Paul and other writers who address it, they are not dealing with the systematic, the, the system of slavery. They are focused on how do Christians, in a world where this is a reality, how do Christians relate to this? How should we act? That is the focus. That's what Peter is focusing on here. Here. 
as a servant, you should be submissive to your master. Why? Because God has called you to do that and because you respect God, because you fear him. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the harsh. That word there, harsh, we get our word scoliosis from that word, from the original Greek word there. Really, it's the idea of of not being straight. It's the idea of crooked. Harsh here is probably not the best translation. Because the idea, the contrast, is between morally good masters and morally bad masters. Not only to the good and gentle, but also to the heart, also to the crooked, also to the wicked. You see, what Peter is saying here is that the wickedness of your master has no bearing on the expectation of your submission and obedience. This topic here, what Peter's saying, it has less to do with how your master treats you and more to do with your master's character. Though, there is often a correlation between those two, is there not? A crooked master will be harsh. That's where the translation comes from. That's where they, how they get to that. But really what Peter is saying here is, brothers and sisters, if you are a servant, if you, have, if you have found yourself, if God has placed you as a servant under a master, serve that master with fear. Not because your master deserves your service. It doesn't matter if he's a good guy or if he's a bad guy. What matters is what God has called you to do. Do you think that it is an accident that you've been placed under that master? Did God make a mistake? No. You are exactly where God wants you, so serve well. Unless the instructions of your master call you to do something that is wrong, then you serve him regardless of who he is, of whether he is good or whether he is crooked. Yet even as Peter writes this, he recognizes that there could be consequences. If you have a crooked master, and he asks you to do something that you cannot do, There could be consequences for that. It is very likely that as a servant that you will face persecution. You will face suffering. And so Peter goes on in verse 19 with a principle. For this is commendable. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. This is commendable. 
Here's another Greek word that I think is important to know. And I, I try not to, to jump into Greek a lot in my sermons. But this word is the word charis. It's the word grace. Literally, this passage says, this is grace. What a phrase. I've been meditating on that all week. It's a, that's a phrase that I want to put into my vocabulary a lot more. This is grace. This is grace. If because of conscience toward God, one endures grief, suffering wrongfully. You see, at this point in the passage, though, though Peter started with servants and we are still in the, the realm of servants serving under master, here Peter moves beyond just the, the confines of that example and he moves to all of life. Because suffering as a result of your conscience toward God, that applies to all of life. If in life, as an exile in this fallen, sinful world, if for conscience towards God, if you cannot do something or because of who you are in Christ, that leads to grief or suffering wrongfully, that is grace. This wrong for suffering, it's a direct result of your Christian identity. It is because of who you are in Christ. It's because of your conscience towards God. And yet here's the principle. That when you suffer for your faith, this is grace. In fact, he goes on with an explanation in verse 20. What credit is it if, when you are beaten for your faults, you take it patiently? When you, when you deserve punishment and you are punished? Well, yes, you should exact. Accept uh, that. You, you deserve it. You've done wrong. But he's moving beyond that. But when you do good and suffer, when you suffer wrongfully, even as he said in verse 19, when you endure grief because of who you are in Christ and you've done nothing wrong, if you take it patiently, This is grace before God. This is commendable. Brothers and sisters, even your suffering is grace from God at work in you. And the reason here that they, they, they translate this word commendable, it's because the, there is a tie-in here to the idea of there is a gift tied into this. If you suffer well, recognize that you are suffering because God is doing something in you. And what he is doing in you is he's bringing to fruition the very thing that he has promised you, a salvation that is full and free and rich. And even your suffering leads to that. 
Even your suffering ties into your sanctification. God is doing something in you even through suffering. It's accomplishing God's purpose in you. It is bringing you to the very thing that you have been promised. Your reward. Salvation. Your heavenly master may punish you. Your human master may punish you. But your heavenly father sees you. And he'll reward you. Going back to the idea of perspective that we opened with, what kind of perspective looks at suffering and sees grace? It's a gospel-informed perspective. It's the very same perspective that changed the very man who wrote this passage, Peter himself. Think back to the Gospels. Peter's not one who just accept, laid over and accepted persecution. It is Peter himself who, when the soldiers came to take Jesus, he drew his sword and cut off Malchus's ear. And yet now, this very same one is writing and saying, submit to those in authority over you. Submit to your masters. Why? Because his whole perspective has been changed by the gospel. In fact, we see this across scripture. You want to study a remarkable passage? Study Philippians 1.29. For this has been granted to you, that you should suffer for Christ. It is a gift Romans 8, 17, we will rise, ra- rise with Christ if we suffer with him. I mean, the testimony of the New Testament, all across the New Testament, is that suffering is a gift. Why? Because God is sovereign. If you believe that God is sovereign, then everything is grace. Everything has purpose. Brothers and sisters, what this passage right here is teaching us this morning is that your suffering, and don't just think, you know, hardcore suffering, but everything that you go through in life, every little annoyance, everything, has purpose in the hands of your sovereign God. God, through the gospel, is using everything to transform you into his image. So this is grace. In fact, verse 21 goes on to say that this isn't an accident, for to this you were called. You were called to this.
You were called to salvation. You were called to this life. And so know this, that the God who called you will sustain you. The God who called you will accomplish his purpose in you. Whatever you go through, it's not a surprise to your sovereign God. In John 15, 18, Jesus says, the world hates me, they will hate you. In fact, when you face suffering, rejoice, knowing that it is a tool for your good. Romans 8, 28, do you believe that? All things work together for good? All things? Even suffering? Even my cancer diagnosis? Even the loss of a child? Even my financial struggles? All things work together for good. This is grace. Thomas Schreiner put it this way, suffering, in other words, is not a detour by which believers receive the inheritance to which they were called. It is God's appointed means of receiving the inheritance. Your suffering is not a side street. It's not an accident. Your suffering, even that, is accomplishing God's purpose in you. You were called to this. You, right now, today. I don't know your circumstances. I don't know what you are going through. But this, I know that you are right where God wants you. This, I know. That this is grace. You were called to this. We understand this in other areas of life. Think of the illustration of parenting. There's a cost to being a parent. There's a loss of freedom. There's a loss of quietness. There's a loss of sleep. Not to mention the financial burden that is added by having children. And yet it's all part of the calling to be a a parent, is it not? It's all part of going through the, the whole idea of what it is to be a parent. In fact, as a parent, you don't view it as a loss or as a burden. Maybe in the moment you do. Maybe in the moment you get frustrated. But overall, you see it. As your child grows, it is a privilege. It is a joy. It's all part of the call to parenthood. In the big picture, you rejoice at those little things. Brothers and sisters, the same thing with the Christian life. You are called to this. Into everything that goes with it, living as an exile. This world is not your home. You're not going to fit. You're going to suffer. You're going to face pushback. This is what you were called to. 
And you are looking forward to a reward. And everything that you go through on this life, God is working in you, molding you into his image, preparing you for what he has called you to. You were called to this. Because Christ also suffered for us. Here's a transition in this passage, and we'll get to point two here in just a second. We're transitioning there. Because this, this, is, this is an offensive truth. This, this is a truth that, that really blows our minds. But you're telling me that suffering in the hands of a sovereign God is good? That even that is grace? Think of this, Christ suffered for you. And he left you an example that you should follow in his steps. That idea of example, Christ suffering for you, leaving you an example, it's literally, the word literally means writing under. Think of in kindergarten. You, my, my kids are in kindergarten. I had one, Avery was in kindergarten. Next year, Ted will be, or last year, Ted will be there next year. And as they're learning their letters, they have these little exercises that they do where they give them a sheet of paper and they have to write their letters on a line, write a capital A, and they have to write it all the way across the line. And the first four or five are already written for you. You just have to trace it. And then you do your own. This idea of an example is that idea of tracing. It is writing that is down that you are tracing. That's the example here. Trace Jesus' life. His faithful suffering even to death for you. Not only does it accomplish your salvation, as we'll see going forward, but it serves as an example of how to suffer well. Of how to accept God's purpose. Of how to submit. You can suffer well. In fact, you must suffer well for God because Jesus suffered for you. He left us an example that we could trace so that we could follow in his steps. In fact, that's exactly where he goes next. This offensive truth, it leads here to a radical example. Jesus. Quoting here, Isaiah 53, 9. Jesus, who committed no sin, nor was deceit found in his mouth. He was innocent. There was no sin found in him. He did not deserve to suffer. And yet even his suffering was ordained by God for your salvation. In fact, not only did he not sin in his life, he did not sin in his response to suffering. He, when he was reviled, he did not revile in return. He had every right to revile in return. Yet he didn't. When he suffered, he did not threaten. He had every right to threaten. 
He could have called the armies of heaven. But what did he do? He committed himself to him who judges righteously. He didn't take things into his own hands. He submitted to the Father in full confidence in his sovereignty and righteousness. Brothers and sisters, the key to suffering well, it's not strength. The key to suffering well is faith. The key to suffering well is a full surrender to the will of God based on a full confidence in his sovereign, faithful, good purpose. It is understanding that in everything, God is good. Jesus, this one who was innocent, this one who in was found no wrong, He himself bore our sins in his own body on the tree. And we can park, we could park right here for the rest of the time. He himself bore my sins in his body on the tree. He was innocent. He never sinned. He did not deserve to die. Yet he suffered and died even death on the cross for my sin. This is the gospel. That Jesus died for me. I deserve to die. My sin separates me from a holy God. And the wages of my sin, what I deserve, I deserve death. I deserve hell. I am the sinner. But Jesus died for me. He bore all my sins. He paid my full debts. That I, having died to sins, might live for righteousness. This is the doctrine of what we call substitutionary atonement. Jesus didn't die for me as an example. There's an example tied into that, even as we saw the example of how to suffer well. But Jesus died for me. He literally died for me. He took my sins. He paid my debt, and he gives me his righteousness. My debt is paid because he paid it. He died in my place as my substitute. So now I live to righteousness. Because by his stripes, I am healed. I deserve the stripes. I'm the sinner. But he took my stripes. And he gave me his righteousness. Understanding that changes your perspective. It changes everything. 
That's what we see in verse 25. We have a confident hope. For you were like sheep going astray, but have now returned. It's Isaiah 53, 6. All we like sheep have gone astray. We've turned everyone to his own way. The idea here is that of being helpless, of being shepherdless, of being dead, even as Ephesians 2, 1 to 3 puts it. Yet in my helpless, shepherdless, dead, hopeless state, Jesus died for me. So now I have returned the idea of repentance, of faith to salvation. Now I have hope. Now I have a shepherd. I find it fascinating that Peter uses, goes back to Isaiah 53 and uses this language, all we like sheep have gone astray. Do you remember the last thing that Jesus says to Peter, his last request of Peter? Peter, feed my sheep. That has sunk deep into Peter. That has stuck with him. We were like sheep going astray, but we have now returned. Return to who? Return to the shepherd and overseer of your souls. The idea of overseer is the one who has responsibility for, the one who safeguards, Really, both of these terms, the idea of shepherd and overseer, both of them are meant to convey to us the sure hope of the believer in the trustworthy hands of God. This is what Peter wants you to know, that you are in good hands. Even when you suffer unjustly, you are in the good hands of a sovereign God. Will he who gave his own son, will he not also for you give all thing, give you all things? Will he leave the job half done? If his own son died for you, will he not bring to completion what he has promised? You have a hope because you have a shepherd and an overseer. It is God himself who has taken the responsibility for your soul. And it is God himself who will see it through. You are in good hands. I want to ask a question here. Because I'll admit, this is a very hard passage to accept. We don't like injustice. But here's my question. Why is it so easy for us to trust God with our eternal soul, but so hard for us to trust him with our temporal suffering? If I can trust God with my eternal soul... 
Why do I struggle so much to trust him with my suffering and this life? My circumstances change, but my God doesn't. He will do what he has said. So brothers and sisters, I plead with you this morning. Don't be as stubborn as I was at five years old. Maybe this morning you don't see the grace of God in suffering. Maybe you're going through it and you just you don't you don't feel it this morning. But that's not because it's not there. Perhaps life feels futile, monotonous. And yet know this that in Christ there is purpose. Brothers and sisters, you have to know this. That in Christ everything is grace. I call you this morning to submit your feelings, submit your limited perspective to the hands of your good God, the shepherd and overseer of your souls, the one who knows all things. Know that he will accomplish his purpose in you. So be faithful. Live life with a gospel, gospel perspective. In all things, may your testimony be, this is grace. May you rehearse that truth to yourself over and over and over again, all day long. This is grace. Trust the shepherd and overseer of your soul. And I think I'd be remiss this morning to say that if there is anyone here who's never placed their faith in Christ for salvation, then in this passage where the gospel is so clearly presented, where we see that Jesus bore my sins, I am a sinner, that I deserve death, I have offended a holy God, and yet God, even when I was yet a sinner, sent Jesus Christ to die for my sins. If you're here this morning and you never placed your faith in Jesus Christ, I would call you even this morning, come and believe. Place your faith in Christ alone and find salvation. His work is finished. He has risen again. There is salvation and none, no other name under heaven than Jesus Christ. Won't you come even this morning as we close in a song?